This is a RomiCast. This podcast was recorded in November of 2021. Get tired of being Beatles. I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in here? Oh, that's a little that John finally got just after that, and we both of us do what we want to do, do what we want to do. If you think it was Paul, keep it. If you don't, scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad, that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Why don't you join me? Yeah, you're here already, so you might as well. Uh, let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore, peel off the layers of the glass onion uh, with my great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. The case today is a Beatles solo album. Just a reminder that the podcast website is romicast.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. This is the 10th episode of Series 2. You can find the first nine episodes of this series as well as all 15 episodes of Series 1 right there at the website, romicast.com. Today is Part 2 of our look at John Lennon's 1974 solo album, Walls and Bridges, and my guest is uh, once again musician and musicologist Mike Daly. If you haven't heard the first part, then go back and listen to that before you listen to this. The first episode covers side one of the album, and we're going to be talking side two here today. Uh, Also, a gentle reminder... If you see fit, could you please consider making a donation to support keeping the show commercial free? Any donation, muchly appreciated. And your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of the show, hosting, advertising. Uh, It's a labor of love for me, for sure. Not looking to make a lot of money off of this. Uh, I don't make any. But if you enjoy the show... Could you please consider a donation to support the show? Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode. It's not that much. Just click on the donate button on the website if you'd like to help out. Uh, If you do, I'll give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. Also, if you don't already, please subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, leave a positive review or rating. That doesn't cost you anything but a few moments of your time, and it really does help. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle RomanukPaul. That is also the best way to get in touch or comment on any of the episodes. You can also do it At the website, uh, there's a comment box on each episode page, so you can do that as well. So Mike Daly is uh, back once again. Great to see you, Mike. Thank you for having me. I I love this album, and I... I'm uh, excited to talk about it. Uh, Mike is a jobbing musician. He plays with a few bands, including Fraser Daly and the Tom Waits Appreciation Congregation. You can catch those bands if you live in the greater Toronto area. Uh, Mike also lectures and researches. He's currently working on a book on the local music scene in Toronto from the 50s and 60s. Uh, If you research that just a little bit, it's a a cool scene, plays big in Canadian music development. Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Gordon Lightfoot, David Clayton Thomas, who later went on to be in Blood, Sweat, and Tears, all cut their teeth back on that music scene. Uh, Several meticulously researched online lectures are available to purchase and view at Mike's website, which is MikeDailyMusic.com. That is MikeDailyMusic.com, including an eight-part series on the Beatles and their world. Uh, Also, another really 
really good one on the words and music of the great Neil Young. You can find Mike on Twitter at MikeDaily8. That is at MikeDaily and the number eight. And on Insta, the handle is MikeDailyToronto. So, Mike, let's get to side two of this record. It starts off with a track that is the most streamed track off the album, The Haunting, number nine, Dream. Yeah, it's a beautiful one. All those washes of uh, synthesizers again. Uh, This is, uh, yeah, it's a funny one. It's number nine, of course, was his lucky number and his uh, birthday, October 9th. And so it held a special place for him. And uh, apparently some of what's in this song did come out of a dream. Uh, the phrase, abawakawa puse puse, uh, he apparently dreamed up and wrote down. And that was another one when I was 12, like, what is he even... What, do you, what even is that, you know? Like a Jai Guru Deva Om from uh, across the universe. Like he likes these weird little phrases where it's like, what are you even? It's kind of nonsense um, foreign language stuff. Abawakawa, puse puse. I guess it's just a nonsense uh, phrase or do you know do you know the more well, about that phrase there's, there's a there's a it, it's nonsense but uh al Corey, who was the promotion guy for capital records at the time <laughs> he came to him after he'd heard he says uh you know my best new york accent i don't even i don't even know if al was a new york guy but you know they're not going to play that record uh and john said why he said because you're saying pussy on it <laughs> <laughs> he thought it was Abo pussy pussy. Well, he's calling uh, his cat. With, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful tune, isn't it? And uh, I, you know, I always assume that was Yoko whispering backwards. Someone call in my name. You know, but it's May Pang. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the lyrics feature two spirits dancing so strange, calling his name in the studio was May Pang, mm-hmm. uh, who whispered John. Uh, and then they reversed it. Yes. And used it in the second verse, following right. after he says, "Music touching my soul." And that's oh, it's the same thing. It's just John backwards. Just swept. Yeah. Nodge. Just swapped her. Yeah. Doesn't quite sound. Nodge. Yeah, just <laughs> uh, Lennon says uh, that's what I call craftsmanship writing, meaning you know I just churned that out. I'm not putting it down; it's just what it is. But I sat down and wrote it, you know, with no real inspiration, based on a dream that I'd had. Mm-hmm. So that's what Lennon says. Um, yeah, he was—he uh, really got into that first thought, best thought, um, beat generation. He embraced that because he was an impatient person. He didn't like working away at something forever. He wanted to get it out, get it done. You know, he wanted ideally to get it recorded and out the same day. You know, he would have loved the internet. Yes. Because you look at Instant Karma, right? That famous thing where he sort of writes the song, records it the same day. It, it comes out, I think, a week later. It was, it was an instant gratification, which is always what he wanted. Can you imagine John Lennon with a home studio and he's just doing... Uh, live streams and uh, uh, writing a song and putting it out that day, yeah. responding to the news of the day that day, like it, he he would have just loved it. Well, around the time of Apple, when there were all kinds of ideas getting getting thrown around, uh, one of his was he wanted to be able to put out a record like weekly that was. You know, like a newspaper is how he, I want it to be like a newspaper where I put it out right away. Uh, And yeah, I've I've thought of that. Like, had, you know, if he hadn't been murdered, uh, 
he would be probably a pretty fun follow on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can you imagine? He'd be he'd be canceled by now for sure. Probably. <laughs> In this, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Just a matter of time before everything's canceled. Uh, just a quick little bit of context on this record, just to refresh your memory from the last episode. Uh, so let's go back to 1973, and it's it's winding down. A quick peek at the UK music singles charts shows Ringo Starr's photograph at number seven. Paul McCartney and Wings, Helen Wheels is at number 13, and John Lennon's Mind Games was at number 26. On the UK album charts, Ringo was at number two, Mind Games is at number nine, and George Harrison was talking about a US tour. Band on the Run is on the way to becoming a global number one record. Uh, There is loads of speculation about a Beatles reunion as the calendar turns to 1974. As a matter of fact, there was a big headline in the February issue of the Melody Maker right there on the front page February 1974 the Beatles are back together again (laughs) to quote the article informed sources in New York suggest that the four of them are preparing a joint statement to be released in the next few days revealing their plans for a new Beatles album Melody Maker understands that all four ex-Beatles have been in New York during the last weeks for legal talks Uh, Of course, that was complete bullshit. (laughs) That was not the case at all. In reality, uh, John Lennon had left New York and relocated to the west coast of the United States uh, back in October of 1973. This was the infamous lost weekend that we've talked about, the lost weekend away from from Yoko, or at least that's the lore. That's the way it's been uh, observed in hindsight. He left New York City when he and Yoko decided to take a break in their relationship. In October of 73, Lennon and May Pang left New York for Los Angeles to promote mind games, and they decided to stick around for a while, living at the homes of friends. Uh, While Lennon was there, he was inspired to embark on a couple of recording projects. Uh, One, he wanted to make an album of old rock and roll songs that inspired him to become a musician and to produce another artist. So in December of 73... Lennon collaborates with Phil Spector to record an oldies album, Rock and Roll. Uh, And these were the alcohol-fueled legendary recording sessions every musician in LA wanted to drop in and participate and pretty soon Lennon was uh, drinking a lot Phil Spector behaving erratically and the sessions just broke down and then Spector absconded with the tapes so the project that one was at a standstill so then in march of 1974 john starts producing harry nelson's album pussycats at burbank studios in california uh john would later say of the sessions that harry had lost his voice he didn't tell me the main thing that was we had a lot of fun there was keith moon harry ringo and me all living together in a house and we had some moments I'll bet they did. (laughs) So then sometime around April 27th, 1974, John and May Pang leave L.A. They head back to New York City where they take up residence at the Pierre Hotel. Uh, If you've been to New York City, Right there, you're going up Fifth Avenue, right at Central Park, and as you're heading uh, towards the park, it's on your right-hand side. Gorgeous, high-end place. So Lennon settles back in. Harry Nilsson comes to New York, and they resume work on Pussycats at the record plant. Um, So Phil Spector's still in limbo with the tapes and the oldies album, and Lennon gets the itch to record something. In the background, he's continuing his legal battles with the U.S. government over his immigration problems. But then on or about June the 17th, 1974, Lennon heads into the record plant in New York City, located at 324 West 44th Street, and he starts work on what we now know as Walls and Bridges. So in New York, unlike in L.A., Lennon instigated a professional work ethic, demanding that his session musicians worked from noon until 10, five days a week, no booze, no drugs in the studio, uh, and Lennon enjoyed a type of creative surge that he hadn't known for a long, long time. This is a quote from uh, Jimmy uh, Iovine, uh, who was one of the 
producers, engineers in the album. He says, the Walls and Bridges sessions were the most professional I've been on. He was there every day, 12 o'clock to 10 o'clock, go home, off on the weekends, eight weeks, done. John knew what he wanted. He knew how to get what he was going after. He was going after a noise, and he knew how to get it. And for the most part, he got it. What he explained, we used to get. That is uh, Jimmy Iovine uh, talking about working on the album. Uh, the band spent a couple of days rehearsing and arranging songs. As several of the recordings later popped up on a couple of other posthumous collections, Men Love Avenue and then the John Lennon Anthology. Uh, the sessions run until August. August 22nd. A cutting master is prepared on September the 3rd, so things moved along pretty quickly. The album was released on September the 26th, 1974 in the United States and Canada and October the 4th in the UK. It was Lennon's fifth solo studio album and it was his last album of original material until 1980's Double Fantasy. As far as the charts go, the record hit number one on the U.S. Billboard charts. It was number one in Canada as well on the RPM chart and peaked at number six on the U.K. album chart. And as per Chartmasters.org, Walls and Bridges has sold 2.3 million physical copies worldwide, just ahead of Mind Games that sold about 2 million and below Rock and Roll, that oldies collection that eventually came out in 1975, that sold about 2.8 million albums. So, uh, just a, a reminder there of a bit of context. Let's move on to the next cut on side two. Cut to on side two. Surprise, surprise, sweet bird of paradox, written for his then girlfriend, May Pang. So this is often pointed to as as uh, his statement of of love for her, and um, I like the opening riff. You know, the sort of unison guitar and bass reminds me of Day Tripper. You know, sort of framing out the chord the way that Day Tripper does. But yeah, it really it uh, the song kind of sticks out on the album amid all the misery of missing Yoko. Um, he's got this uh, pretty happy, pretty happy little tune, and of course, it's not my favorite. Uh, along with um, what you got, you know that the as I mentioned, these are my two sort of at the bottom of the list. Contains a couple of Beatles references. This album uh, on this one, uh, a bit of an echo or nod to "Drive My Car" with the at the end, you know the. Drive my car, of course. Oh yeah, beep 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 beep. beep. And this one is sweet, 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 sweet love. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I never know. course in uh going down on love uh he uses boris's line from help somebody please please help me somebody please please help me I never noticed. Yeah. These are great. Yeah, he throws that in there. Now, it, along these lines, uh, Elton John makes an appearance on this, and I found this interesting. You can probably shed some light on it being a, a professional musician. Uh, Elton spent over three hours recording his vocals. He sings some harmony vocals on this, and he had trouble matching Lennon's phrasing. And shortly after the album was released, he recalled the frustration, saying people were leaving the room. It was, it, was, it was crazy. Um, what was he having trouble doing in layman's terms? He was having trouble matching the timing of John's words. Because if you listen to this song, it's, it's one of the trickier songs in terms of timing 
um, on the album, you know, if you think of the beat, sweet as the smell of success, two, three, four, her body's warm and wet, rushes that in. Well, I need, need, need her. It's, it's, there's a lot of uh, variation of rhythm in the vocal line. I could see that being, it's not like the usual thing where it's just a repeated um, timing and rhythm, rhythm timing. It's every phrase is different. So it's very, very hard to, uh, it, it is hard to follow. You know who's great at that? Apropos of uh, an earlier conversation we had, Joni Mitchell's the master of that. Oh, of the yeah, she she has such unusual phrasing, and you listen to the song, and every line is different. Often, you know, it's phrased differently. It's not like these. What you often get with a da 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 da, and it's just it's so predictable. Not Joni. And not John in this song. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, uh, so Elton John makes an appearance on there, a staple of 70s, 70s, 80s classic rock. And speaking of which, uh, back in the mists of time, I remember you telling me when we were chatting once, uh, when I was watching Frasier Daily, a great night out. Uh, kids, if you're in the Toronto area, uh, check your local listings. But uh, you told me that, that you played with a, an organization, I don't know whether it's a group or whatever, but note for note, uh, when you Ish. went, <laughs> when, you, when you played classic albums, yeah. uh, in their entirety, note for note ish. Yeah. Um, now in terms of recreating some of the classic albums, note for note, is it, is it really difficult or did the music reveal aspects to itself when you had, and you know, pick any album you want that, that people would know a classic album and some insight that you can bring from having actually had to try to play it exactly the way they did. Does one jump to mind? Well, they're all difficult in their way. Um, you, you mentioned Abbey Road and I played that one a lot. So, you know, we had to work out who was going to play what. If there was two guitar players, you've got to, You've got to organize, okay, you, you take that part, I'll take this part. And then you have to not only figure out what the notes are, but you have to play them in the right way. And you have to get the right sound on your instrument, at all while singing those crazy harmonies at the same time, which the Beatles never had to do. They, they overdubbed all that stuff later on. So, you know, just, just the, the uh, challenge of taking something that was pieced together in the studio, often edited together, like you would have a guitar solo that probably came from three or four different solos stitched together in the studio, and you have to play it all at once. So sometimes that means that you've got a phrase way down on the neck, and then a nanosecond later, you have to be right up at the top, something that they never did, because they actually just t took a razor blade and cut the tape. Those, those, and compiled those two things together. So there's all kinds of logistical problems that go, that go with it. But, you know, I've done it. I did a John Lennon show with this organization and I was John. That is, I was singing all the songs wow. and I was playing guitar and piano, which I'm terrible at, but so was John. So it's cool. <laughs> so we do Mother, you know, and I play the piano and, um, and sing it. And so there was the challenges of trying to, capture his sound without doing an imitation, without doing a cheesy imitation. Like I, I was trying to recall his sound. And I found that the, the trick that I used to get his vocal sound or to evoke him was that I had to act, I had to think of myself as acting tough. If that if that makes any sense, it's it wasn't any one thing. It was just an, my attitude when I was singing was that I was trying to be aggressive and tough in my sound. A swagger. Yeah, I yeah, like, but especially like, I think of it as not not even just like a, a um, confidence, but a it's almost like a like a um, an aggression. An aggression. So I had to think in terms of an attitude of aggression. Also, it, all, it, it was also important to have an echo 
on the voice. He loved that. And I found that if we set the echo to 170 milliseconds, a single echo, that's the Lennon sound. Because uh, we haven't even talked about that. But yes, the, the ever-present from his late Beatles days, mm-hmm. echo on the voice is yeah. front and center. He, he always had, wanted to be Elvis. Yeah. And, and, and I, that's, I that was in my notes, too. And I'm glad you brought that. Because that's where it doesn't age well to me because well there were a couple of songs where he was just it was just a little bit like uh, portions of all things must pass not so much the vocals but the the instruments added but it's just so smothered in echo that it just it's very much of its time and you lose something of the singer uh, i don't know whether stuff's recorded more dry now or tastes of change but yes you this album like he's just his vocals all of them i think are just smothered in echo hmm yeah i to me it's not excessive but again i'm i'm used to this this album is part of my wiring you know of what i think music should sound like so it's never going to sound too much of anything because it's it's part of the definition to me of music hmm What's uh, what album did you enjoy playing the most? By the way, in in the note for note, you know there were really fun albums um, that we didn't do too much. So of course I got sick of doing Abbey Road because I did it too much. <laughs> um, so I actually got sick of the album and couldn't listen to it for years because you just there comes a point where if you've if you've dissected something too much, you can't hear it again. Did you ever do Dark Side of the Moon? Yep. Love that album. Yeah, that was fun to do. And um, the White Album was fun as far as Beatles albums. But, you know, we uh, a really neat one to do was OK Computer by Radiohead, which is a sort of a later classic. And I played guitar on that and got to do all the weird effects that Johnny Greenwood does. And oh, I yeah. really enjoyed that was a lot of fun to do. I like doing Ziggy Stardust, um, singing that. Um yeah, there were there were a lot of them over yeah. the years. We did Band on the Run too. That was that was fun. Just did that twice. Let's move to cut three on Walls and Bridges, and from Walls and Bridges we go to Steel and Glass. There you stand with your LA tan and your New York walk and your New York talk. Nobody does nasty like John Lennon. And this is a nasty song. It's usually thought of as being directed at Alan Klein. And those guys, after, uh, you know, John was so hot and cold on people. One minute he loves you, and then the next minute he hates you. And, you know, he was, he, he loved Klein so much that he was willing to let the Beatles break up over, over Klein managing the Beatles. Look, I think... Paul was wrong too to want to bring his father-in-law and brother-in-law in. Are you crazy? Nobody, nobody should accept that. That was that was Paul being way off base too. But you know, and then by 1973, uh, Klein and uh, Lennon. Klein is not, or Lennon is not happy with Klein, just as had happened with the Rolling Stones. I just finished doing a Rolling Stones course, and Klein was all mixed up with those guys too. And, um, but Lennon said that it was a composite, that it was not just about Klein, that it was a composite of different, different people that, that he knew of. Uh, certainly son of, how do you sleep? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very direct attack. I mean, he could be very cutting when he, uh, when he wanted to be. But even the, the, the swooping violins. Yeah, that was always sounded, um, those always sounded sort of Asian to me, those 
those um, he was really into those sorts of orchestrations, right? Yeah, like the yeah. the uh, swooping string parts. But it, it, especially in the chorus, words, you know, steel and glass, like that's right out of you know. How do you sleep at night? And he probably dictated the parts to the to the arranger to to say, I want this and. That's what they came up with. Uh, Lennon says, uh, it actually isn't about one person in particular, but it has been about a few people. And like a novel writer, if I'm writing about something other than myself, I use other people I know or have known as examples. If I want to write a down song, I would have to remember being down. And when I wrote Steel and Glass, I used various people and objects. If I had listed who they were, it would be a few people and you would be surprised. But it really isn't about anybody. I'm loath to tell you this because it spoils the fun. I would sooner everybody think, what's it about? And try and piece it together. So and it's not about Paul, he goes on to he say. He says, for sure it isn't about Paul. Because <laughs> so. that's all anybody wanted to know, right? That silly back and forth between too many people and how do you sleep and yeah. It was, uh, what was the one McCartney did? Um, let me roll it. Which was just roll such it. a Lennon pastiche. Yeah, yeah, that it's it's uh, it's thought to be his answer to Plastic Ono Band. Yeah, and yeah. with the Lennon vocal uh, echo. Yeah, exactly. Which which I think, from what I've read, is what pissed Lennon off. Yeah, it was, he's doing me. He's doing me, and he's <laughs> and and Paul's like, I can do you better than you. Yeah. Check it out. <laughs> Uh, yeah, which brings us to Beef Jerky, the next song, which is very similar in many ways to Let Me Roll It in terms of the guitar riff. You know, it's a it's a Lennon um, guitar feature. That's that's John on lead guitar. That's his thing. That sliding guitar riff is, uh, yeah, it's very much like "Let Me Roll It," especially at the end of the of the the phrase when he does sort of that smeary kind of kind of thing. It sounds like the end of uh, the end of the lead guitar in that song. It was a B side of "Whatever Gets You Through the Night." Uh, wrote it when he was in L.A. Yeah, this, this interesting choice, right? And it's one of the few L.A. songs to kind of make it onto the album, I believe. So it's kind of early. Uh, I'm just Lennon performed the part alongside Jesse Ed Davis. Yeah. Um, a bit of a, there's a tragic figure. Uh, yes. Played in the concert for Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, played with Dylan, Ringo, Stones, Faces, Clapton. Yeah, I mean, great indigenous musician. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, just go down the, I mean, Van Dyke Parks. I'm just looking at his credit list. Ry Cooter, mm-hmm. David Cassidy. Uh, well, there you go. Play, played with Leonard Cohen on Death of a Ladies Man. Hmm. Right, the Phil Spector produced yep. album. Yep. That's a crazy album. So, yeah, uh, that's, that's an instrumental cut. Can't think of, I can't think of another instrumental cut from any Not of totally the- instrumental. Does have some vocals oh, yeah. on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, beef jerky, beef, beef jerky, yeah. beef jerky. The beef, the beef, I didn't want to, the beef jerky chant, of course. <laughs> I got to give that props. Haven't you done that chant at I a know. gas station yeah. or something? Beef jerky, beef jerky, beef jerky. And the horn arrangement sometimes has been compared to that of Savoy Truffle. No, I can hear that. Yeah. Now, now, the next song is, is one that I could hear you doing a version of. Yeah. With one of your onstage partners, Alec Frazier and Frazier Daly. Uh, now, you two played together for many years, and I want to talk about it for a sec. Recorded at least three albums that I could find. Played hundreds of shows together, would I be yeah. safe to say? Uh, the two of you seem to have, when I listen to your original music, uh, and even when I go and see you two play live, you do a lot of covers, but you, you do some original stuff. But even the covers you do, you guys have a real bluegrass music appreciation. 
Met her in a truck stop in Woodstock, Ontario By the light of the Coke machine She was the sweetest girl I'd know So I took her home to my double-wide trailer in the park And even then, well, I could see how quickly she'd go dark You can shake it, you can break it You can put it on the shelf All I really know is that my woman Is the devil herself You know, I think we have an appreciation of bluegrass, blues, country music, old rock and roll, everything. I think it's just, it's a little bit of everything in there. But certainly, um, yeah, I mean, I think we both really like um, folk music. And bluegrass is so adjacent to folk music, you know, this sort of acoustic basis and uh, traditional basis old-timey. We both really like the old-timey stuff. So that's kind of a point of connection for us. But yeah, one of many, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, the, the shows are really enjoyable and it's always fun, uh, which I'm sure must get annoying for you guys. But when people, hey, can you do whatever? No. Yeah. Hey, it takes, takes the pressure off us and we don't have to think. <laughs> and the, the odd original gets thrown in as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but check out their albums. I've got a website, uh, and uh, you can get to it through MikeDailyMusic.com. Yeah, or just FraserDaily.com. Yeah. And uh, a lot of gigs around the, the greater Toronto area. Any European tours planned? Not yet. Not, Not yet. yet. But we're just waiting for the right moment. Let me know, and I'll be <laughs> the first guy to promote it. Uh, we move to Cut 5, and nobody loves you when you're down and out. Yeah. And again, I could hear you and Alec doing this one. Yeah, I love this song too it's uh so desolate the title of course is based on nobody knows you when you're down and out a uh, kind of blues jazz blues standard from 1923 jimmy cox jimmy cox the writer of that song yeah. yep nobody loves you when you're down and out nobody sees you when you're home cloud night Everybody's hustling For a buck and a dime I'll scratch your back And you scratch mine I've been across To the other side and, uh, you know, it's this song that's so resigned, you know, and then it just lopes along. And then the bridge, he just busts out. He jumps the octave and uh, he it suddenly gets huge and then right back to this kind of languid ballad. He, uh, he thought, he imagined Frank Sinatra singing it, which is not something uh, I can hear Sinatra ever doing. They'd have to take that bridge out of there, you know. I wake up in the morning and I know I'm in dance asleep. Ooh, ooh, wee. Really, Frank? You know, that. Maybe bring in Nancy for that part or something. Uh, Lennon says along those lines. Uh, well, that says the whole story. I always imagine Sinatra singing that one. I don't know why. He could do a perfect job with it. You listening, Frank? Uh, you need a song that isn't a piece of nothing. Ooh. Yeah. Well, uh, he's right. Here's he's one right. for you. The yeah. horn arrangement, everything's made for you. Don't ask me to produce it, though, Lennon says. <laughs> yeah, that would have been interesting for for Lennon to produce Sinatra and for Sinatra to record it. But yeah, that was, that was the issue Sinatra was having in the 70s, right, was material finding contemporary material to record and and he he really had a sort of anti-rock bias and i think it blinded him to a lot of material that he could have recorded he must have hated the beatles uh he did record something yep yep uh but he always called it a lennon mccartney (laughs) song which pissed off george harrison no end um yeah he he hated rock and roll he hated elvis he said that Rock and roll is the most 
brutal, ugly, um, he called it the martial music of every sideburn delinquent <laughs> on the face of the earth. He said that it's, uh, um, it's played, sung, and written for the most part by Cretanous goons. Wow. Yeah, 1957, he wrote that in a French magazine. Wow. Well, I mean, it certainly... It's poetry. It's, it is, and, it, it, and I can see why he felt that way. I mean, it stomped on his toes. That was the end. Well, you know, he held his own, though. He was still having number one hits, right? Like, he had Strangers in the Night. It, that knocked the Beatles out of the number one slot in 1966. That late, was it? Yeah. Okay. Well, you're one up on me because I would have said that his chart domination die, would have died off late 50s, early 60s. No, he still, he had two number ones in the 60s that I can think of. That's uh, that song and Something Stupid. That he did with his daughter. Yes. Yeah. Great song. <laughs> I don't mind it. It's, it's We're right up there with Uncle Albert. I don't mind it. Uh, the uh, the Smithereens do a fantastic oh, cover. Oh, do they? Of it. they okay, do. didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, of something stupid. Uh, all right. So uh, speaking of something stupid, we get to the last cut on the album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great story, and uh, yeah, it's called Yeah, yeah. Lloyd uh, Price. In the la -la. I'll get rid of that. One, two, three, four. Sitting in the la. Well, he recorded it for real on the rock and roll album with Spectre, and I guess he would have already recorded it. So he had it in mind, and it's John on piano and singing, and of course his son Julian, who is uh, I think 11 years old here, playing drums. And, um, you know, it's sweet in a way. John blows the lyrics, by the way, which he was famous for. Um, you know, Paul talks about that the first day they met in 1957. He's watching John, you know, faking his way through the lyrics of Come Go With Me, the Del Vikings song. And uh, yeah, it's a sweet little ender for the album. I think it's a nice commemoration of his re, uh, re, reuniting with Julian, you know, this, this love-starved kid. Um, you know, who spent so little time with his father. And it's, it's this sweet little moment that, that finishes off the album. It's 11-year-old Julian yes. on the drums. And you hear Lennon, as the tape is rolling, he says, let's do sitting in the la-la and get rid of that. Uh, presumably, it was a, a reference to, uh, what's the guy's name? Was it Morris Levy? Oh, Morris Levy, who, yes. Who owned the... Who owned the? I guess the the rights to Chuck Berry's "You Can't Catch Me," which John had supposedly plagiarized in "Come Together." Yeah, here come old flat top and and so on. And as a way to get out of a legal settlement, John agreed to record some songs that Levy had copyright to, which was the rock and roll project, and uh, getting mixing him. Mixing up with Morris Levy was something nobody should ever wanted have wanted to do. The notorious mobster of the of the music industry, and Levy ended up really. I mean, the the rock and roll project was just fraught with problems, right? From Spectre stealing the tapes, but also Levy um, taking a rough mix of the album pressing it into albums and putting it on TV on a TV commercial like a KTEL ad. Have you seen that? No. Oh, it's on YouTube, the ad. John Lennon sings the rock and roll hits, 14 great songs, 699 album, 799 8-track. Like it's it's just it's so cheap and tawdry. <laughs> and uh yeah, so Levy just put it out on his weird little black market record label, Adam the Eighth. And uh, it was a real embarrassment. So that, you know, they, 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 Capital was now competing with this 
pre-release of the album, they had to get an injunction. And and there's one other song on that album that isn't on rock, uh, rock and roll, Angel Baby. Or no, Be My Baby. Be My Baby. Or is it Angel Baby? It's one of the two. There's a baby in there. That must have just been, I mean, presumably he puts that out, capital cease and desist, yeah. try to sue him. Yeah. Then they're trying to get Lennon to hurry up on the rock and roll album. Yeah. And get that out. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a mobster who you pissed off if you're John Lennon. So I'd be looking over my shoulder. For sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Morris Levy was a, he was a real tough customer. Uh, Walls and Bridges presented the original one, uh, if you can find it. And they're around. They're out there. A fold-out cover, which features various photographs of Lennon taken by Bob Gruen. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, it should. He served as Lennon's personal photographer during his time in New York City in 1971. He's best known for his photograph of Lennon, the one where he's wearing the New York City T-shirt. Uh, other notable celebrities and rock bands that he, he photographed, uh, New York Dolls, The Clash, Ramones, Sex Pistols, Patti Smith, Sonny and Cher, Blondie, Bowie. Elton John, everybody. Uh, The package also contained reproductions of artwork drawn by Lennon as a school kid in the 50s. The fold-over flaps could be arranged in various combinations, and they were designed by Roy Kahara, uh, who also art-directed just look this up, Rhinestone Cowboy, did the cover for that. Shaved Fish, the Lennon greatest hits. Blast from Your Past, the Ringo greatest hits compilation. Uh, albums by Natalie Cole uh, and Murray's Christmas Hits. Oh, I love that one. Had to get that resume. (laughs) And so on. Uh, The record sleeve has a couple of black and white pictures of Lennon, and there's also an eight-page booklet, which contains song lyrics and five more artworks from the 50s and an extract. I've never seen that. Yeah, yeah. I'll show you. I've got a little miniaturized version of it. Um, In my, my nerdy collections... Uh, the Japanese did these fantastic mini LP exact replicas of the full-size albums. Complete with the die cut and everything? Everything. Uh, I'll show it's, it's, it's See, oh. my copy of this album was the crappy 80s reissue that didn't have any of that stuff. And the album was just a picture. There was no cut cutouts or any of that stuff. There were no inserts, just a white inner sleeve. Yeah, no, the, the, it's quite an elaborate package. Um, and then shortly after its release, Lennon mixed a true quadraphonic version mm, of like Walls and Bridges. Yeah, only available on 8-track. Really? Uh, until they do the, the Walls and Bridges How box How did they set get re-release. a quadraphonic mix on an 8-track? No idea. I would love... Somebody should reissue that in uh, Surround. Uh, I would imagine it'll... Uh, you know, everything's getting it. There'll, there'll, there'll be the Lennon estate at some point. There'll be a yeah. Walls and Bridges box set, and you'll get the Blu-ray quad. Yeah. Ray. But yeah, it was only released uh, on eight track, but it was a true quad mix. Wow, of the album. So there wow. you go. Yeah, that's a, and that's that's it for for nerdy facts that I have. <laughs> anything else? Anything else to add? Nothing much to add for me. I I, I just. Uh, I would just add that I think this is a gem of an album, and uh, I think it's overlooked sometimes and misunderstood. Where do you rank it in the, you know, the, and I know it's a ranking as a social construct. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a personal, it's a personal, uh, did I say ranking as a, because I. No, 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 no. Uh, (laughs) What was it? Sorry, folks, I'll bring you into the inside joke room. Uh, (laughs) Mike and I were talking about music one time when he was taking a break. I was there watching Fraser Daly play and he was grabbing a beer and, uh, you know, I came over to bother you and uh, we were talking about music and I think I said something about, I think Joni Mitchell, Joni Mitchell's the greatest to me. And you said, ah, that's such a social construct. Oh, did I I say that? You did. You did. And I I said, well, no, it's just taste. I mean, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that now. I, I, I think maybe you adjusted your ascot. Yeah. That sounds (laughs) right. I'd like to I'd like to roll the tape on that one. I don't think I said any I don't I don't think I said it in quite as pretentious and insulting a context. But you know, I could be wrong. In the solo canon, I'm gonna put it number one plastic ono band. 
I put this at number two. Okay. Followed by, I'm going to say, Imagine. Followed by Mind Games. Followed by uh, Rock and Roll. Then Double Fantasy. And then Sometime in New York City. I think that covers it, right? Yep. Yep. That's, that would pretty closely fall. I, I would probably, John Lennon, Plastic Ono Band, number one. Mm-hmm. And I would. Yeah, I think that's a work of genius, that album. There's yeah. no album like that anywhere. Yeah. Courage. Bravery. Yeah, he's naked. It just it's it's musically naked. There's just the piano, bass and drums or guitar, bass and drums, you know, very little in the way of overdubs. It's just it's a cri de coeur, you know, and, it, and it's it invented a genre. It invented the rock confessional, you know, the the bare bones uh you know, and it's almost punk in its musical aesthetic, in its minimalism, and its, um, you know, there's so much that was innovative about that that album, Plastic Ono Band. And this is a very different album, Walls and Bridges, you know, almost the polar opposite, but but gr- I think really great in its own way and really interesting um, for as a way of understanding a, a fascinating period in Lennon's life. Well, thank you for causing me to pull this wonderful album out and listen to it again. I hadn't listened to it for a long time. Yeah, great. Uh, And uh, I thank you for that. Great talking to you as always. Great talking to you. Just a reminder that you can visit Mike Daly at his webpage, mikedailymusic.com. So what do you think of Walls and Bridges? What do you think about what we thought about the album? Hey, if nothing else, I hope the podcast has maybe nudged you to uh, give a listen to an album that you may not have listened to in a while. I know it did that for me. I hadn't listened to it in ages until Mike wanted to do it. Uh, And it was nice. It was nice to go back and listen to it. It's a good record. Uh, As always, dear listener, always happy to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the podcast episode page, which you'll find on my website, romicast.com. And uh, always happy to interact with you on the socials, Twitter or Instagram. The handle is Romanuk Paul. That is Romanuk Paul. Uh, I also have a Facebook page. Do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. Coming up on the next episode of The Walrus Was Paul, Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps dig into the Beatles classic, Abbey Road. The emotional response I still have to this record, even walking up here just giving myself a refresher course on it, it just, I had to stop when when the end comes on and just gather myself a little bit. So I realized that it uh, it's so deeply embedded in my psyche that uh, it's a hugely impactful record. I can still see myself holding that record at Christmas time and the wonderment of hearing that music and not understanding what I was listening to, but it having such an impact on me. That's Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps of Blue Rodeo on Abbey Road. That is next time on The Walrus Was Paul. Until then, you take care.